one thing I'm really grateful for is that through my life, I've really been able to navigate like white dominated spaces and I've learned to get access to people and institutions with a large amount of capital. And that's the only way that Yoga Foster has scaled in the past couple of years. I'm Leila Saad and my life is driven by one burning question. How can I become a good ancestor? How can I create a legacy of healing and liberation for those who are here in this lifetime and those who will come after I'm gone? In my pursuit to answer this question, I'm interviewing changemakers and culture shapers who are also exploring that question for themselves in the way that they live and lead their life. It's my intention that these conversations will help you find your own answers to that question too. Welcome to Good Ancestor Podcast. Nicole Cardoza is a social entrepreneur, investor, and public speaker, making wellness accessible for everyone. She is the founder and executive director of Yoga Foster, a national nonprofit that empowers educators with yoga and mindfulness resources for the classroom. She's also the founder of Reclamation Ventures, a fund that invests in high potential, underestimated entrepreneurs making wellness more accessible in their communities. She teaches accessible and friendly yoga classes that blend movement and reflection. Nicole's work impacts over 100,000 students each year and has increased the health equity of communities across the U.S. She's a 2017 Forbes 30 Under 30, 2020 Well and Good Changemaker, and the face of Nike's Spring 2020 Nike Yoga Campaign. She was featured on the cover of August-September 2019 issue of Yoga Journal. She speaks regularly on social impact, equity and health at foundations, schools, and Fortune 500 companies. Hello and welcome everybody back to another episode of Good Ancestor Podcast. Today I'm here with Nicole Cardoza. Nicole, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here. I've been really looking forward to this conversation. Like many people, I came across your work last year in 2019, it would have been because of a controversy that happened that we will talk about. But I've been following your your journey ever since. And it's been really incredible to see how something that was very painful to witness and I'm sure experience, you really turned it into lemonade. I created a whole thing out of it that is part of your purpose. So we're going to talk about that and more in this conversation. But before we get started, let's start with our our initial question, which is about who are the ancestors, living or transitioned, familial or societal, who've influenced you on your journey? I have to say my great-grandmother. I mean, first off, I have so many incredible ancestors. So, But my great-grandmother inspires me because she used to host Anybody, she grew up in and lived in the South Side of Philly, and she used to host everybody in the community over for dinner, and there was mm. never not enough food. Like that term didn't exist. Didn't exist, right. And, yeah. And she used to make this pound cake that was incredible, that we all loved, my mom, my sisters, and I. And we used to ask her, how do you make it? And she's like, you make it with whatever you've got. And she didn't have like a real recipe with it. She just threw flour and eggs and butter and maybe it had lemon or maybe it had some kind of flavor. Maybe it didn't. 
because she just took what she had and she made the most of it. And then there's something really inspiring to me with that. Yeah. That sounds like you. (laughs) 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 Because I've been, you know, following your work and in preparation for our conversation, been watching some of your interviews and some of your talks and, and looking at how you have created this what I see is this good ancestor legacy that you're creating. And what I'm in awe of is the fact that you haven't let logistics get in the way. You haven't let the fact that you don't have everything needed to make it perfect, make it happen. And there's something for those of us who struggle with perfectionism and for those of us who feel like it has to be a certain way before I even take the first step. Like when I see that in another person, I'm like, give me some of that. I need a dash of that. Because <laughs> let's talk about the work that you do. You run this um, national nonprofit, Yoga Foster, and you have founded another organization called Reclamation Ventures. These are incredible organizations doing much needed work. And you did it, I would say, before you were ready, quote unquote. Yeah, you know, and I, I feel like if I could sit around, I am a chronic perfectionist. I could sit for the rest of my life waiting for things to be perfect. And there's a part of me that will never be good enough for the standards I set for myself. Mm. So I always remind myself of that. It's like, yes, I can be a perfectionist and you're not going to get shit done. And right now we live in a world where we need to get a lot of shit done and it doesn't even have to be halfway perfect. Like it just needs to happen. Right. So I, I try I do my yeah. best. Well, I was back on it sometimes. It was well, it was really interesting hearing about how you started Yoga Foster because, I mean, you can tell the the story, but you started doing yoga with young kids when you were still a yoga student. You were not a teacher. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us that story. Oh, goodness. <laughs> no goodness, teaching kids yoga. It just happened, and you know, I was volunteering at a school. They were looking for ways for the kids to move after uh, there was a shooting on the street outside. So the kids weren't allowed to play on the playground. They were stuck in the classroom for the hour between the end of the school day and then after school homework help. And they're like, what can we do? And they're like, you like doing yoga and you used to teach kids. So clearly you can teach kids yoga. And I know that's not true. (laughs) I know from experience now, like with, you know, so many trainings under my belt, how untrue that is. But at the same time, it's like, what do you do when you're called into work? Even if you're not perfect for it, do you say, no, I'm not going to do the work because I don't feel like I'm good enough. Or do you do everything that you can to do the best that you can in that moment? And, you know, for better or for worse, that's what I did. I'm like, I'll just teach kids what I like about this practice and why it feels good in my body. And maybe there'll be some kind of relationship. And it did and it helped. And that's when it was very clear that this could be a practice that we could introduce to schools in a healthy way with mm. the right training instructors, with the right guidance and support. And my nonprofit grew from there, essentially. Wow, that's incredible. And I got such chills when you when you said that about, you know, when you receive the calling and you know you're not, you don't have all the things ready, but are you going to just wait until you're perfect or are you going to move forward? Because that's certainly how I felt in this work that I do. You know, I didn't come from a background of anti-racism teaching, thought that there were people who were far more qualified to be having these conversations than I was. And yet it was something that kept calling me and calling me again and again. Talk to us a little bit about the power of callings and when, you know, you can hear something and and it's yours, it's for you to do. Yeah. To me, 
oh gosh, Audrey Lord has a, this um, yeah. the essay on the transformation from silence into action. And, and she says that in the essay, she's talking to her daughter and I'm not going to be able to quote this, but her daughter says that like, you know, the answer comes and punches you in the mouth. In the mouth. You. From the inside out. Yes. yes. <laughs> and that's, I'm so sorry to butcher that, but you know, that to me is what it is. You know, I wanted to go to college. I was going to be the first person in my family to graduate from college. I wanted to go to college and make a lot of money. That was my whole goal. This whole nonprofit nonsense, quote unquote, meant nothing to me. And as much as I knew that this work was so important and necessary and was growing organically underneath me, I was like, no, that's not the path that I chose. And, you know, it really did. It, it's just like the calling was more of a dragging in some respects, right? Yeah, I'm going to be dragged, right. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I do think that like we are placed on this earth and there is work that we are called in to do that our ancestors decided to do like, you know, generations ago and that we're doing for people that will come generations after. And so for me, in response to your question, it's like, a calling is like letting go of what you think is best for you and listening to what like the world needs, right? Yes. And what lifetime is calling for. And also unattaching yourself from outcomes. Cause I do think a lot of the most important work you don't see a benefit from in this lifetime. I bet you could not have imagined that doing yoga with young kids would have led to you founding a nonprofit that is having an impact all over the country. Like those are two separate ends of a spectrum that I bet you could have imagined, right? But it's it's so amazing how, you know, we have our plan and then, you know, the divine has the bigger plan and we're only shown a little bit of it because that's the, we just have to make that next step. What were the next steps after doing the yoga with the kids at the school that led to it eventually becoming a, a nonprofit? I started to organize trainings four schools uh, and bringing in a wide range of different instructors. And we were working in a bunch of different schools in New York City and realizing that it was quite difficult to get a bunch of people's schedules to align to take the same training. We call it professional development in the education world. And in the same location, you know, New York City is is quite small, but also really large and very difficult to navigate. And so we took it online. We made an online teacher training because we thought that would make it more accessible, which enabled us to scale. And then I got an opportunity to apply for this like nonprofit accelerator program. I didn't even know what those words meant at the time, but (laughs) a program that was looking for people running nonprofits that had a great idea and needed resources to scale it. And I applied to it on a whim. I thought it would help me understand what those were. And then Mm. like, and learn from the application process. I had no inkling that I would get in and they did. And that was the big point. It was about six years ago today that I quit my job to do it full time. And that was when it was okay. Now I'm like really make or break doing this. Like I've given up on this like illustrious career, quote unquote. Um, (laughs) I've quit my job. I have no money. I don't even know if nonprofit founders get paid and here I am running this. So that was the, the big transition point, I think. Yeah. And, and I wonder, you know, when you started working with those kids at, at that school, because it, you were coming in as a sort of emergency situation, right? This mm-hmm. incident had happened at the school. Tragically, someone had been killed. You mm-hmm. were coming in to sort of provide relief and support. What was it that you were seeing as you were supporting these kids that made you think more children need these resources? I want to take this wider than just this school in this space. I learned from working with the kids, but also to my own relationship with school is that we're always telling kids to pay attention, but we mm. never teach them how. 
Mm. Like the, the concept of like how to calm down and connect to your breath and take a moment before you respond was entirely foreign to me until I went to a yoga class. And I think that's got to do with how I was raised, especially as a black kid in an all white community and how I had to be twice as good. And like, there's a lot of my identity that's tied to that. Yeah. Working with a bunch of kids who have spent all their whole day sitting in school or staying until school until 6.30 until they can go home. A lot of them are going home to themselves. They're going to be hanging out with other kids on the street and might not even ever go home. A significant percentage of that school's population is homeless. To have this moment where we just pause and we said, like, what feels good right now? Like, mm-hmm. how, why is breathing important? What do we want to pay attention to? How do we want to show up when we're on our mats? proverbially, because we didn't have mass at the time, but like, how do we want to show up in this practice? I just realized that it's very rare for us as kids to have that opportunity. Mm. You know, as you were talking, I was thinking about how particularly with the practice of yoga as a wellness practice, it's a space in which we see the yoga industry and all of that and who gets represented there and who is seen as the norm in that space, it often isn't a young black kid in an underprivileged community, for example, right? That that isn't something for them. It's those who can afford the expensive yoga gear, mats, you know, (laughs) pay for the different styles of yoga and so on and so forth. And yet there's something so vital about wellness practices that is needed in these spaces where people experience marginalization and the effects of, of discrimination and racism. Yeah. And I don't think I would have ever learned that. You know, I was going to a donation-based yoga class or yoga studio in St. Mark's in New York City, which is incredible. And there's people that are practicing from all over there. And I think that's such a rarity in this practice, especially in today's time. Um, But my practice was really rooted in exactly that, like seeing communities that you don't see on mats. And as I grew into this work and I started to interface with, you know, the major brands and the sexy studios in New York that we we leverage to fund the work that we do. That's when I started realizing like, oh my gosh, my practice is not this practice, right? Like the practice I'm rooted in that I want to extend to communities doesn't look like this broader space. And the way that I got into this was very untraditional. I'm so grateful for that because I think it's enabled me to show up in this space a lot differently because I've never felt like the wellness industry has been a, like a quote unquote safe space, right? Right. Like, well, space is like right. just from one, like of my practice, I was like, oh, no, 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 no. This is not, mm-hmm. <laughs> this is not what I think the status quo could be. And I know something that's so much more beautiful and profound and welcoming yeah. than what I on the streets in New York. Do you ever face, or have you ever faced in communities of color, this idea that, oh, that's not for us. Yoga is not for us. Meditation is not for us. We don't have time for that. Yep. All the time. And I get that. Mm -hmm. A lot of times people ask if schools don't want to do this because of like the religious relationship between the practice. And I think it's really unfortunate just generally how yoga has become like such a commodity in America and has been erased from its cultural roots. There's a whole conversation there. But I think more often, I, parents and families aren't as concerned around like the religious or spiritual ties. They're like, why are my kids going to do something like this that's so frivolous, that people do that super expensive and inaccessible and they're not seen there? And I want to protect my children from a space that can cause harm. And I totally get that. Yeah. There's a powerful parts of like what this practice looks like in America for all of us. But I also understand that like we just, we haven't done enough work 
as a collective to make sure that we're all seen and heard. So that yeah. Feel- well, I'm thinking about like growing up and if yoga was offered at my school when I was a kid, right? So in the eighties, I can't see my mom saying, yeah, you should go <laughs> because, because yeah. part of black survival within white supremacy is focus on the things that are going to push you forward, give you a good career. What is it going to add to your resume that is going to show that you deserve to be in a high paying job or in a certain type of career or a certain kind of space? And this looks like stretching. And I know my mom knows this now because she, you know, wellness is such a big part of her life as well. It's so important. Those of us who are people of color, who are black, who are people who are indigenous, the effects of racism on our bodies, on our minds, on the way that we see ourselves, you know, part of reclaiming ourselves. And I love that you use the word reclamation ventures for your organization is that re- like reconnecting back to our own source first. Yeah. When the world is telling you, this is who you are, you're only this, you're only that, you're only allowed here, you're only allowed to show up in these ways or in these spaces. And it's reclaiming that space within ourselves that says, you belong everywhere. You are so whole and so worthy. It's just so, so important. Yeah. The sooner we can like cultivate that in youth, I think the better, right? Yes. Kids have the, just not only the capacity to create that relationship in themselves as a young age, but also can bring that home and hopefully inspire their parents to do the same. Yeah. So I feel really, although I do a lot of work in the reclamation of wellness overall, I do think the most pivotal point is in the future generation, right? Yeah. Generation. What are some of the exciting things that you're seeing come out of your work with Yoga Foster around kids as they're going through these programs and sort of growing up? What kind of changes are you seeing that are really exciting to you? Well, we're six years old. So we've had kids going through this for most of elementary school, which I love. There's kids that now are leading like yoga, like after school programs. And so they're like student teachers within a larger group. We have uh, students that started this in middle school. They're going to high school and starting like yoga clubs. And so that's the most inspiring thing. Mm. And because, you know, a big part of our work, and I'd be remiss to say this, especially on Teachers Appreciation Day here in the States, like the way we do our our work is we train school teachers to be able to teach this in their classrooms. And a whole other conversation for another time on like how this practice can build more equitable relationships between teachers and students. And so what I also love to see is how teachers show up more mindful and feel like they have the tools to kind of, and then meet their students, you know, quote unquote on the mat in in a whole different way than what education normally allow. Well, one of the conversations I wanted to have with you around this, and this may or may not be what you're hinting at, but is the dynamic of white saviorism in schools. So with white teachers teaching kids of color, You know, that's something that I know when I speak to my community, you know, I recently shared a post asking to Black, Indigenous, people of color, what do you wish you could tell your white co-workers about how to show up in anti-racism practice at work? And one of the things that came up from a number of teachers of color were, I wish the white teachers at school would understand you're not here to save the Black kids in the school. Is that kind of what you're seeing, where you're seeing a change? Yeah. I mean, there's so much of of the education relationship between teachers and students that's rooted on like discipline and control. Mm -hmm. And so this practice, being in relationship with students in a mindful way removes all of that and also starts to challenge. I always say like our PD is like a social justice training (laughs) wrapped up in in the right. 
Americanized yoga. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like, you need to like stop thinking that you can control people. Um, and you need to stop thinking that like attention is something that you can win or lose or punish or reward, right? Like this is actually building students' capacity to choose how they respond in a room and for you to actually see what's happening and respond to them with tools that will be able to help. So yes, we have a lot of that. I mean, like, you know, 80% of the teachers in America are white women and Mm. 95% of the communities that we serve are black and brown students. So we have a responsibility to show up like that. Right. um, With practices administered. And studies have shown that black children are often punished at higher rates. Girls experience adultification at younger ages, seen as less innocent given less mentoring and less support, right? So these are things that we know do happen. And it sounds like what you're saying is for the teachers to go through this training and then to be able to develop this relationship with the children could be a way to really help alleviate some of those things that we're seeing. Absolutely. You know, having like, for example, just having a space where students can go, we call them like time in spaces or Zenden or whatever people want to call them. Yeah. spaces in the classroom where students can retreat and center themselves and do some breathing or take a couple of yoga poses, sit on some pillows. I don't care what's there. What I care about is like, what are you offering to students to allow them to respond before you most likely unfairly judge them right. or punish them based right. on behaviors that aren't just what they're actually doing, but how you perceive those behaviors if you're looking at their behavior from a white gaze, right? Right. So, that to me is like critically important. Mm. Um, it's like, how can we set up those spaces to give all students an opportunity to thrive, but particularly the ones that are systemically disadvantaged? I love that. And this is so important. I'm really excited to see six years on from now, you know, what kind of things you see. I'm sure you'll start getting your student, past students come back and say, I want to be a yoga trainer. I want to, I want to spread the message. <laughs> so in some respects, I also hope we change the industry by the time they get there. But yes, yes, <laughs> yes. yes. So even if I tried this and I do some breathing techniques when I get stressed at my yeah. job, it has nothing to do with yoga, right? Like mm-hmm. they don't have to follow the path to be able to find solace in the practice. Right. So me, it's just like, I just want you to know that like you can reconnect the source, like you said. Right. And so I talked about at the intro that the way that I came across your work was because of a, a controversy that happened that many of us saw online with the yoga journal. I think it's what the biggest selling yoga magazine in the United States. We get it here in Qatar. I've seen it in the supermarkets here. So it's an international, <laughs> it's an international That's magazine. Awesome. And I would love for you to tell it from your perspective. Yeah. Sure. So last summer we did our first marketing campaign for Yoga Foster. So we uh, drove a school bus across the country to raise money. Work. It's really important to note that like most of our work is funded by the wellness community. The whole company's business model is based off the insight that there's 50 million public school students in America that don't have a chance to move or breathe. There's 50 million people in America that actively practice yoga and mindfulness. That number has gone up since we did this. Wow. But for me, it was like, how can we create a relationship where people that have the financial capacity to pay yes. $20 for a drop-in yoga class can support our work? It costs us $20 to bring yoga to one student for the entire school year. So the relationship between them is so key. If we get everybody that practices yoga to give $1 in the course of their practice, we can support all these students for a lifetime. That was the whole idea. So yeah. Yeah, it's very important for us in my role as an executive director to navigate systems and spaces 
that have a lot of like financial capital and influence in the, in the yoga space to raise money for schools in their local community. So to do this best for last summer, the idea was we drive a school bus across the country. We go visit a bunch of studios. We talk about our work. We have people physically engage with our work through this bus and donate. They can donate money. We also collect yoga mats and drop them off at schools. So super cute. And we got Yoga Journal to sign on as a media sponsor, which is super important because Mm. if there's somebody that talks to the community uh, that funds our work more succinctly, it's Yoga Journal. And then after some conversations, they wanted to put me on the cover, which was super sweet. So I'm like, great. We got the tour. We got the bus. We got the cover. Right. I'm really excited about how this is going to put more eyes on Yoga Foster, right? And help, yes, support more kids. Yes. Yeah. On a personal note, like as grateful as I was to be on the cover, like it wasn't my aspiration to be on the cover. And I think that's important to note because it's so many people's aspiration to be on the cover. Right. I was really excited about getting this work moving forward. And so I did the photo shoot, which was super fun. They rented a house for me, which was great. And then a couple of weeks later, I hadn't heard anything. And then somebody sent me a message on Instagram, like, hey, I voted for you. I hope you win. And shared a screenshot of a picture of me on the cover that I'd never seen before. I'd never seen a single photo shoot from this, or single photo. Photo, right, right. And a picture of Catherine Budig. And it was us side by side, like in a survey with like two things on top of us. And Catherine Budig. Yes, for those who don't know, who is Catherine Budig? Yeah, and you're incredible, wonderful, very popular, well-known white blonde yoga teacher um, who's been on the cover a bunch of times. And it's just like a wonderful, wonderful human. And so I, you know, go to Yoga Journal and I find out that like on all of their social media channels and apparently through email, they had sent out a survey asking people to vote, like whether I should be on the cover of her. And I was like, wait, this is so weird because like I signed a contract. And just to clarify, this wasn't the first time that they'd done this. This is not the first time. (laughs) have messed up with putting a black person on the cover. They put Jessamyn Stanley on the cover, but then did an alternative cover as well. Mm-hmm. Because I guess that was necessary. Right. Yes. They have messed up a million and one times. And I've actually been in conversations with the people on their team about that work and like how they choose to do things that are better. And so me walking into it was like, they fucked up. Right. I'm happy to like be in this position and do this work on behalf of my company. And honestly, because I'm naive, didn't think that this would happen. Not naive, uh, not naive. <laughs> you know what it was though? It was like, I and I have shit to do. That's what this, yes. what it is. Yes. Like I have shit to do. And when somebody is saying like, this is what we want to do. We want to be in relationship. This is how it's going to go. Right. Honestly, it's like, I can't spend my whole fucking life looking over my shoulder. That's and right. Black right. women are always expected to, you know? Right, right. It that's it. another one of those things where it was like, all of a sudden now, like people are voting whether they want my body on the cover versus Catherine Beauty. Right, has and you've got your natural hair out. Natural black hair. woman, right. Yeah, you know, I've made a commitment to like wear my natural hair in as many things as possible on behalf yeah. of my mother who's never been able to wear her natural hair in public. It is very important for me to show up that way. But like, I wore a weave most of my damn life. Like, it is not a comfortable thing for me to do. And I'm reclaiming a lot of that through that. And, you know, these two covers, it didn't have our names on it. It didn't say like, do you want to read about Nicole and her work at Yoga Foster? Do you want to read about Catherine and her work doing whatever, like which she would show up as? It was two pictures of two people sitting, smiling, looking at the camera, casual, like hanging out casually. And the only thing you could be asking somebody to vote on is whether or not you wanted one picture of somebody or another. I got hella mad. <laughs> right. 
As did I the entire internet, I think, as well. So naturally, like, the first thing I did before I got mad, honestly, is, like, I bawled my eyes out. And I was really upset. And I found myself going back into, like, the lunchroom in sixth grade where, like, I knew that I was the only person of color. And I knew there was a reason why I didn't get to show up. And I know there was a reason why that, like, cute boy didn't like me and like the other girl. Like, so much of me retreated back into what it feels like when you see something like that in that moment, because that's been so much of my childhood. And also feeling really ashamed that like, despite the work that I do, I still wasn't quote unquote good enough to be on the cover. And, you know, later that day, before I have even had a chance to say anything, the, the editor emailed me and was said, we're super happy to like move forward with your story. Here's some edits. But by the way, we have this kind of thing going. We need to make sure that your cover is going to sell. Let us know if you have any questions. And what does that mean? We're That means that they were going to run the story on my nonprofit and the story on my work and not put me on the cover. I mean, what does it mean? We want to make sure it sells. Like, what is that? Do you know what I mean? Like, (laughs) there's nothing else it can mean, right? (laughs) It can mean. It's literally saying that I am not good enough to be on this cover and you need data to validate it. Like, that to me is even more fucked up. Like, you're not even going to take the the responsibility if you feel that way do this, you're actually going to allow an entire broad community to also join in on you shaming Black natural hair to be on your cover. And I think as a Black woman, and I think as many, many Black women and Black people who were seeing that happen, I think it was a collective pain for us all, because I think we all saw ourselves in you. It was happening to you, but I think we all had those memories come up of being in all white spaces, not feeling good enough, feeling like we were being compared. I think that's why we saw such a big backlash come up as well. Yeah. And that's why I ultimately posted it. You know, it happened and I I didn't post it for a few days. Mm. And, you know, at first I was like, well, part of it was because I wrote like all of the feelings that I had and sent it over to the magazine and they didn't respond. And that just felt insulting. Oh, wow. And also too, I'm like, I have been doing this work now for five plus years. Like what more do I have to do to be recognized? I don't give a fuck what I look like. Like why is it still an issue that I'm not getting recognized for the work that I do? Because if I was a a white blonde woman, this wouldn't have been an issue. No. This wouldn't have happened. Right. Especially when you bring in the narrative of white saviorism. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. The benevolent white woman who is touring with her boss around the United States to offer this yoga to underprivileged kids. Like it would have been, it would have been the cover. (laughs) Absolutely. Like there's nothing more holistic than that. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not selling like $400 fucking crystals and like making this place more like inaccessible, right? Yes, yeah. And the whole article that I wrote for them was about like why this work is so important to me and all of the things that you and I have been talking about. So the right. irony of having that happen yeah. with that being the article you were still going to run if I wasn't on the cover was just like right. insulting. And I was, you know, I posted it not just because of myself, but because I knew how many other people feel that way and because I knew that we needed to say it, not just for me, but for everybody else, right? Because like, there's so many people that do aspire to be on this cover. There's so many people that do aspire to run their own business and be a black female founder doing good work that are constantly having this happen to them behind the scenes all the time. All the time. In all all arenas, in all spaces, in all, from the teenagers on TikTok to the, you know, right? So like, it's everywhere, right? Everywhere. 
So I posted and it also, it would, it had already been posted. Like mm-hmm. this was something that I was like bringing to light. Like this right. had happened publicly. Right. And I think it's because a lot of people like don't care about what yoga journal posts, like in our community didn't see it. So mm-hmm. I was like, oh no, 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 I'm just going to screenshot what they did and copy and paste what I wrote in this email and post it on Instagram because this is the conversation that needs to happen. Yeah. And especially if they're not going to be willing to have that conversation with me through email. Yeah. Yeah. And that whole moment in that time, I cannot imagine all of the breadth and depth of emotions and the processing that you had to do to get through that. But what I'm grateful for is, first of all, the well of support that this just came like a tsunami wave towards you. That yeah. heartened me that more, more and more people were like, this isn't okay. This yeah. isn't okay at all. But also that you took this moment that, like I said at the beginning, were these lemons and you turned them into lemonade. Because like you said, you don't want to be on the cover. You're about your work right? Yeah. But you took this moment to really see how can I drive my work forward even more to help you and support even more people. And this mm-hmm. moment became a catalyst for you for creating Reclamation Ventures. Yeah. 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 Because when I posted it, I was like, I actually want it. I've always wanted to start a fund. I think we need to be redistributing capital to people that need it most. That's what Yoga Foster does. Yeah. But also do programming around that too. But I'm like, I really just want to be giving money to people like me who took years to be able to get to where they are now because people didn't believe in them and people yeah. didn't give them money and didn't put them on the fucking cover of magazines. And right. so in that post, I wrote that and we got a bunch of people to donate. And then when Yoga Journal asked me, of course, Yoga Journal was like, we'll put you on the cover. We're so sorry. And I was like, I don't even want to be on the cover because now at this point, like everybody that came out and supported me, which is all black women, by the way, they That's right. <laughs> That's Right. are going to buy that magazine. And that means you're going to make more money. So I was like, you can't put me on the cover unless I get all of the money from the magazine. Yes. And then I took that money and put it into the fund. And so that's how the fund was actually founded. was like, this is something that we all built together, all of us coming together, especially all the Black women that came and championed for me early on. Amazing. And that story always gives me chills because like <laughs> I said, like you took this moment where you, they could have said, okay, we'll put you on the cover. And it just leaves you with this icky feeling of, I don't want to be on the cover in the first place. I feel no. like you're just giving it to me because you've been shamed. And also right. you're going to profit from it anyway. So, right. you know, yeah. how do I come out of this with my dignity intact and focused on what my mission is? And you really did that. And I just want to say thank you for that example, because these institutions will really try and run circles around Black women. And we have to be, like you said, constantly sort of aware of when we enter into these spaces, how we are being perceived and viewed and how we're often being undervalued. And one of the mm-hmm. words that I love that you use when you talk about reclamation ventures, you, you talk about giving support for underestimated entrepreneurs. Mm. And I love it. I love it. You did not use marginalized. You did not use discriminated. You did not use minority. Any of these words that make us feel like inherently we are lesser than, it's underestimated. Why did you choose that word? Well, first off, that's a word that Arlen Hamilton, who's a venture capitalist founder, a black woman, is in her work. And she is like my idol. Like I'm obsessed with Arlen Hamilton. And but I heard her say that in a talk and I was like, holy shit, like that is it. Because like, I am not less than, I'm not anything else than what white people in dominant culture perceive me as, right? right. And you are underestimating me. That's on you, right? right. So like, it's like, I want to find those people who are being underestimated by society, which says nothing about like them being less than in any way. It's just less than what white supremacy has decided that they are. Right, right. 
I have to credit her. I took it from that. And I really wanted to build something that seemed to be modeled after another Black woman. There is a lot of tension I have with like running a very capitalistic model, knowing how like shitty fucking capitalism is. And so for me, how do I model a fund around somebody else that I think is really embodying this work in a holistic way? So um, essentially from her. And, you know, the word underestimated, it makes me think about the story that I've told before, where years ago I was invited to come speak on this sort of international tele-summit for International Women's Day by a very big wellness company in the U.S. And my initial instinct was going to be no, because I, I've i seen the teachers that they have and they're all white, essentially. So, <laughs> But... I decided to say yes, because I thought, well, this is an opportunity for me to say, yes, I'll come in, but only if you change it in these ways and bring in more teachers of color. And when I brought this up to them, they said, we would love to have more teachers of color because they did have a few, but you had to know that they were of color. You couldn't necessarily tell from the their photo. And yeah, they were just on the very lighter end of the spectrum. Certainly mm-hmm. no black women, no dark skinned black women. And they said, we would love to have more teachers of color and black teachers. We just don't know any. And so I got so mad. (laughs) I was so mad. But I thought, you know what? This is an opportunity for me to educate you. So I went back, pulled out just a list of people I follow and sent with their names, their bios. And each one of them was a fucking rock star. Like each one of them was like this award and that award and has done this and been on this list. And created this. And I was like, how can you tell me you don't know these people? And what was annoying was that other white guests in that telesummit knew these Black people. Yeah. So they could have just asked past guests, we don't know any, could you recommend, right? And I said, the way that this gets perpetuated year after year after year in your telesummit is that you assume it's somebody else's job to help you find these people. And you mm-hmm. assume that we're not in this work because we don't, you think we don't do this work. We started this work. Wellness practices come from us. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so the fact that you're telling me we don't, what do you think we do? Right. You know? Right. So, yeah. So that word underestimated really, like I read it and I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's necessary. I'm just so tired. I hate when I hear that, like, oh, I just can't. Like, I don't know anybody. It's like, no, you're just choosing not to find them. Right. It's like me saying, like, I don't know where to get pizza in New York City. It's like, well, I'm just choosing not to find pizza in New York. Right. Like, there's Google. Right. Like, right, <laughs> right, right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and when we dig deeper, the, the truth is that they are there. You just don't value them in the same way as you value your white teachers, as you value white entrepreneurs, right? Like, early on, when I started talking about anti-racism, some of the things that I was noticing was the fact that all of the like wellness and spirituality authors were all white. Like I had to really search to find books from people of color and black people, not because we didn't write them, but because we don't get those contracts that give us the books that are in the bookshop. Sh- right. Right. Like oftentimes those books may be self-published or they may be published, but they're lower down on the list. They don't get promoted as much. Right. Like we really have to advocate for ourselves as authors that how are you going to make sure that once you've published my book, it's not going to end up down there and you just keep promoting the same one, two, three people over and over and over again. Right. So tell us about Reclamation Ventures. And was Reclamation Ventures something that you had in mind before the Yoga Journal? incident and therefore saw it as a moment of this is a sign 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Same thing with the universe calling you. Yes. <laughs> I think one thing I'm really grateful for is that through my life, I've really been able to navigate like white dominated spaces and I've learned to get access to people and institutions with a large amount of capital. And that's the only way that Yoga Foster has scaled in the past couple of years. And it's something I'm really grateful for and also felt a lot of shame with, um, with just like how easily like I'm trusted as a light skinned, able bodied, dark woman in a lot of ways to be able to do this work. I mean, I can't get on the cover of fucking yoga journal, but whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Like I've been doing this work for six years and I feel like a lot of people still don't know that like yoga foster is my company. When I walk into a room or I'll be on panels, I started their companies like six fucking months ago and have raised like significantly more than I have. And it's like, you know, there's just like a lack of opportunity to get access to this capital for so many of us. And in this world, like the kind of work that a lot of us, like the companies that we want to build need money. They need capital and we can't get loans at banks in the same way that we can't get VC funding. And so I was like, I want to start something that just gives capital to people that are doing good work in wellness because they deserve it. And the work that they're doing is also focusing on communities that are often not seen or heard in the space. Right. right. And in terms of that capital, what are the, some of the things that entrepreneurs are, are doing with it that you wanted to help them support? Because again, I really want to highlight that this is not saviorism. Like you're empowering individuals through venture funding, right? Venture capital funding to be able to grow their businesses, to be able to scale, to be able to reach more people. This is completely different to the sort of saviorism model of I need to donate to black people and brown people because of these biases that we have about them. Yep. Yeah. That was another thing. A lot of people are like, oh, if you're trying to like work with underserved or marginalized communities, like you just should be doing like donations. It's like, no, no, no. These people are doing really amazing businesses that will also be hyper- that will also make me money. So like, I want to be sitting at that table with equity in their company. So as it continues to thrive, like I can get that money back and reinvest in other people. Like this is good fucking business. Right, right. These people have incredible businesses and great capacities to scale, but VCs don't see their work as profitable as people working in white dominated spaces. Like these are just relatively untapped markets. There's less people at the table, which means that you can get a better deal if you invest in early. Like even if you were thinking about this, like like as a white man capitalist, like you should still be investing in other people. The issue here is bias. The issue is what you think that's not going to happen because you actually don't value this talent as highly. And so, yes, to me, it's really important that we invest and give people actual money so that their businesses can scale. Philanthropy doesn't necessarily always do that and isn't rooted in sustainability. Right. Or in a sense of empowering, it's that giving sort of from this, you know, benevolent, um, superior, right, uh, posture. Um, There's a lot of control and dominance in philanthropy too, which is like the conversation we're having today, but like there isn't just like, oh, I'm giving because like I feel like I want to support you. It's like I'm giving and I want to influence how you do your work. So I actually think there's a lot of shit in in VC funding as well, but I do actually think there's more opportunities to act more equitably just based on the landscape. Because most people are coming in with value. Right. More negotiating power. Right, right. Based on conversations that you've had with entrepreneurs that you fund, what are some of the obstacles or conversations they've had with venture capitalist funds that are not, you know, founded by a black woman? Like what are some of the things, biases that they come up against? 
you know, like talking to somebody who has a meditation app for people of color, it's like, well, how many people are going to use that? And Headspace is already in the market. And why do you need stuff tailored for like the BIPOC community? Like what, what's different? It's just like people breathing. It's like, how many meditation apps do you know that even have like meditations in Spanish? How many people in America speak Spanish as their first language? Right. Talking about data. Right. And so that kind of stuff, like I yeah. have to constantly prove like why my product should even exist mm. when I'm actually creating something that's like a niche and talking to an audience that isn't actually served. So that's the first thing. And just, yeah. I've been doing it on my own, you know, I've been bootstrapping this. I living at my parents' house. I have people to support in my family. I can't mm. do this forever. And it's like, we're, you know, a lot of people that come into this space that aren't swaddled by privilege do have higher stakes, which means that they can't wait, you know, right. for people to decide whether or not they're good enough. They're trying to do good work. They're in the work right now and they're meeting an immediate need. Yeah. We need to support them. Yeah. You know, you've been running Reclamation Ventures now for less than a year. It has, it's not yet been a year. What has this journey been like so far? The journey has been incredible. You know, we've done like early, like unrestricted grants just to be able to learn about the landscape. We were planning on starting to invest a million dollar fund in through traditional VC investments Q2 this year. Uh, we shifted that a few weeks ago for immediate relief because of coronavirus. So that threw everything that we had in terms of our plans out the window, yeah. which I'm actually really grateful for. You know, I think most companies should be pivoting to address needs. And what we're realizing right now is our work should be rooted in keeping people that are underestimated in this work and helping them survive coronavirus. Because this is like, for the next two years, things are going to be hella tough. And the people that are already here have been doing a lot more with a lot less and are likely to be the first people that are impacted. So it's just a reinforcement of why I'm in this work and why I'm here. It's like, how can we give immediate capital to people that need it most? Yeah. You know, I was having a conversation with Latham Thomas, my Mm -hmm. friend, who's the co-founder of Mama Glow for our live version of Good Ancestor podcast. And one of the things that we talked about there was how in response to coronavirus, um, there are some white doulas and sort of doula organizations that are now giving the work away for free and how that will impact doulas of color because if it's given for free who are you going to go to first of all and then secondly when it's given for free with somebody who is white they're just the person that you're going to go to if you have unconscious biases right so you know you're looking at reclamation benches and how it's responding to coronavirus i think it's so important the work that you're doing right now because the people of color will be the first to be impacted are the first to be impacted always and like you said yeah we're in this moment right now and Hopefully within a few weeks slash months, we'll be out of it. But the repercussions are going to be for a long time to come, right? And we're talking, thinking about, you know, my sister-in-law is a yoga teacher. My best friend's a yoga teacher. They're not at work right now, obviously, right? The studios are all closed. They're having to look at different ways to pivot and so on and so forth. But if you don't have a cushion, you don't have a way to be able to survive the next few months, come the other side of this virus, you're having to start again. Mm-hmm. And without a relief fund, without organizations such as yours that are providing this kind of support, it's really hard. It is. And, you know, like we're less likely as small business owners, as independent contractors to receive like federal funding here in the yes. United States. 
States, like the payroll protection program was a hot mess and really favored larger businesses with established lines of credit at major institutions. And that's like a lot of things that black women in particular can't get to begin with. Right. And don't even have that by the time that this comes around. People are impacted by the criminal justice system. And so we just have to be really clear that like we need to invest in people first that need this, that are, you know, the most hard hit, the center of the storm. Yeah. And so with this pivot, right, because you said we have these plans and now this is the plan (laughs) at this moment right now. Are you taking it sort of month by month right now? We are. So we just closed our first grant round for $150,000 that we're going to deploy to like probably 70 to 80 people. We're still going through the last. And then we're going to continue to raise for this next month and then do another grant round probably in Q2, Q3. So I do think we need to like long-term relief that's in phases and then get into like lower interest loans and actually to go back to doing investing because I do think that model is important too. Like there's one thing of getting money in people's pocket. There's another thing of meeting people where they are and investing in their businesses in this time for them to thrive. So I don't know if that's going to come through. I think that we're all learning about what this looks like Mm. (laughs) and trying to figure it out and we get more information week by week but certainly another relief round and then those no interest loans pretty soon. So there, there's a large number of people who have white privilege who listen to this podcast because of the nature of my work. In your work, what is it that you would like to invite them to do to support what you do? Because the people I talk to in this work are really looking for ways to practice allyship. And you know, I remember you said earlier about if you could just get $1 <laughs> from every yogi in the country, right? From every white yogi in the country that you know, the effects that that would have, what can they do? Yeah. The first and foremost, go to reclamationventures.co, go to our website, look at our directory of people who are all underestimated individuals that have yoga studios or some kind of wellness offering. Go through that list and give them money directly. Give them a class subscription, buy their products, do whatever they're asking for go do that and then like do it twice. Also do that in your own community. But I'm, I'm assuming that you've already done that work and now you're looking for more, which is incredible. Yes. So go to that list. <laughs> also, after you've done that, donate to our fund and then we'll be able to reallocate those funds to other people that you might not have already seen on that list. We're really prioritizing people that are in hard hit communities that have super direct needs. I mean, people that are caring for their grandparents while they themselves have coronavirus, people who are eight and a half months pregnant and had to shut down their studio give to our fund and we'll be really grateful to send it forward. And then just stay in conversation with us. Stay in conversation here. Keep listening to this podcast and keep listening on how you can do this work. This work doesn't end when we sign a check, which is really important. Like, yes, money is a binary thing and there is such things from not enough to enough. And that is a finite number. But this work is going to take a lot more than money because money is the root of all these problems. So it can't be this only solve. Oh, wow. Okay. I want to press deeper on that. So money is the root of the problem, but it's not the only way it's going to be solved. What else is needed? I think we need to reimagine capitalism. I think we need to reimagine the entire system that's here. I mean, like capitalism only thrives because we have people systemically disadvantaged and systemically oppressed, right? Mm. Like I come from slaves. I come from property. I used to be considered a a monetary thing and not an actual human being. And so we've come a long way. But at the same time, like that is the root of how this country was built. And so 
although I am grateful to be leveraging the system to shift and redistribute power, I also am eager to be in a space mentally, just personally, I just want to like breathe fresher air and think about like, how do we change this entire system? Because yeah. like what I'm doing is like, it is helping the system right now, but it's also investing in a system that's inherently broken. And so what, what does that look like to get out yeah. of it? We have these systems and the way that they are, these broken systems that are creating these dynamics that we're seeing that disadvantage and marginalize and harm communities of color so that communities who are white can benefit and experience privilege in many different facets of their life. And so the work that you're doing is filling these gaps or creating, sort of rerouting us to another, a new reality, right? And that is, that takes courage. That takes a certain amount of, of courage. And what do you want to say to people of all races, all people who are wanting to imagine and be co-creating this, a new world? The way that you do it, you, Nicole Cardoza, are doing something in a way that's never been seen before. And each one of us has these callings and has these visions and these imaginations and these things, but we're scared of taking that next step or that first step or where do I start? Where do I begin? You know, what words of advice do you have for people who could be, if they just took the next imperfect step, creating a new, a new route as well for us? Yeah. I I would just say like, I don't think they're ever going to be good enough to do something that hasn't been done before. Like there's no fucking rules. You know what I'm saying? Like, and there's nobody that can tell you that you're good enough to, to do this thing that like only you know how to do. And you're never going to be good enough for yourself. So just fucking do it. And like taking the first step enables you to iterate on the step that you took in your next step. Right. So just think about it as like, if, as long as I start something, then I have something to improve. Right. But if you never start it, you can't make it better. Right. So I mean, just fucking do it. We all know what it looks like to like live by the rules. We can like imagine that life for the rest of time and those rules will always be there. Just break them or it's going to happen for you. Like I listen, I didn't like think that I would be in this role a hundred thousand times over. I did not ask for yoga journal to do what they did last summer. So it's going to happen. So you might as well do it now. I I think Audre Lorde in that same essay talks about, you know, in the transformation of silence into language and action, I think she says about how, and I'm butchering her quote now, but basically about the fact that staying silent doesn't change what the reality is anyway. So you might as well speak. It won't protect you. Your silence doesn't protect you. Not moving forward does not change the fact that these things will happen anyway. Right. Yeah. So it was like, you might as well like do it now, grab a snack, get some water, like put on whatever, like you need to put on to feel good, like get your lips, whatever shit it is. And just like, do it. Yeah. Do it with agency. What fortifies you on this journey? Because, you know, we take those steps and then we're terrified out of our brains. And, (laughs) you know, because I I can imagine I'll put myself in, in your shoes. I know nothing about venture capital funding, right? Like, I'd be like, what am I supposed to do? There's a million reasons why I shouldn't do this. I don't know enough. I need to go get an education in this and so on and so forth, right? So each step you're taking, but there's that screaming voice in your brain. What fortifies you as you continue to take each step? One thing I love is that, you know, I didn't have as many like black female role models growing up. And so 
I think if I had more visibility around what I could be doing, I would have done things a lot sooner. Mm-hmm. And so one thing I like to know is that like, I might totally fuck everything up and I don't know what I'm doing and I'm learning as I go, but maybe I'll inspire somebody who's like super fucking smart, like, you know, and then they'll come in and they'll do it all right. And it's like, maybe <laughs> that's what my calling is, is just to like fail the whole way. So somebody else can trailblaze their way into a new like post-capitalistic society that's rooted in equity and well-being, then like, fuck yes, I'm willing to take that fall. I love that. Like what you said, maybe it's my job to just fail the entire way, right? All the time you're not failing, right? But you are, right? You're taking a million missteps to find the next right step, right? But like you said, it's someone else is watching. We never know who else is watching. Seriously, I read something and I don't remember where it's from, but it was talking about how avalanches are really important because they help clear the way for new growth to come in in spring. And if the snow is too heavy, obviously none of that stuff can grow. So sometimes you need a fucking avalanche in your life. You need a big fucking failure, disaster, hot mess situation to serve what's coming next. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like a serial entrepreneur, right? Is there, are there any other businesses that are sort of bubbling under the surface right now? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm really interested in finding new models to make wellness more accessible. So I see it as like, where else can I be pulling strings Mm. to like change, to unravel things? So I use like different companies and being a serial entrepreneur as my way to just kind of like poke things at every angle. I'm really interested in what collective care looks like as a healthcare system. So that's something I'm I'm focusing on right now. Especially in these times, I'm sure. Yeah. And I really want to rewrite what imagination looks like for black and brown girls. That's something that I'm focused on. I feel like, you know, I read Octavia Butler when I was in middle school and I think I'm fundamentally changed by that. And I think we need more cultivation of imagination. Um, as a tool in our toolkit and not as just some like aspirational aspect of self-actualization. It's more of a self-preservation thing. Right. So I'm really looking at like, what does imagination look like as a skill? Those are the two things. And is that really informed by that last piece around how we imagine ourselves outside of the white gaze, right? Yeah. Rather than in, in reference to, but outside of it entirely. Yep. Yeah. yeah most of what we think of as magical is white male. Yeah. And we're seeing like black girl magic all the time, right? But it's Octavia Butler's somebody who's very important to me. I came into her work a lot later though. I wish I'd had that reference from an early age. I think it would have really changed how I relate to myself as a black girl at the time and a black woman now. I'm grateful now that I have that reference point, but seeing myself as the protagonist, first of all, in the story and not because of my race, but just because I am, you know, was just like mind blowing for me. Like I see you, you're this amazing black female founder and you are doing incredible work and you're being underestimated every step of the way. All the rooms that you're entering into where, like you said, you, you know how to move in these spaces and these white dominant spaces. And you're having to do that in the face of the white gaze. Because I'm thinking of like when Oprah gets asked that question, like, how do you feel when you're in the room and you're the only black woman in the room and everyone else is a white man, you know? And she says, I love it. (laughs) (laughs) How do you see yourself in those spaces? Like, how do you imagine yourself? I am learning to love it. I I know exactly what you're talking about. (laughs) 
you know, my parents raised me to be as white as possible. Like their, their goal was safety and self-preservation in all white communities and making sure that we were able to fit in and do twice as good. And I, you know, I learned that like, it doesn't matter how good I am. Like I'm still going to be the black girl in the room. Like it just, that's what it is. And so I'm learning to embrace it and I'm learning to stand there with generations of black women with me. You know, because I'm not just standing there alone. I actually have millions of people standing behind me, in front of me, to the side of me. It might be alone, like the only face that I see, but I'm standing there for a lot more than me. And so I try to remember that, is that I have the gift of walking into every space as a community, you know, like we as Black people live throughout time. And so I feel I'm standing here and I'm doing things that I hope my ancestors are proud of, right? And I hope that my future generations are proud of too. Yeah. And I know that they are. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. And that idea of like being a good ancestor, I mean, you're working with kids, you're working with adults, you're working with people at different points in their life and and really helping them to recreate a new reality for themselves, which Mm -hmm. is just amazing. So thank you for the work that you do. I'm so inspired by you. Thank you for what you do. Are you kidding me? You know, going back and thinking about like all the people that came out to support on Instagram, like it was you and your community that were a big part of that. And it's such an honor to know that there's so many of us doing this work. And I was incredibly inspired by the conversation that you started a year prior to that. Yeah. And we're not stopping, right? No. Not at all. It's like, I can't not say anything if people like y'all are out there doing this work, right? And that's the thing that we don't know who we're inspiring, like who's being given strength or who feels that they are now safer to really say what they need to say. Because like I said, like these institutions will really run you around and really make you think like you're imagining it or it wasn't that way and, and all kinds of things but it's that community care and it's knowing that I'm not alone. That's so, so important. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've so loved this conversation. And before I ask my, my final question of you, how can people, you've told us about reclamation ventures and how people can support there Mm -hmm. and connect there. How can they support yoga foster and how can they support you? So yoga foster is at yogafoster.org. Uh, you can learn more about our work, especially how it's shifting in a landscape where schools are closed. And I'm NicoleACardoza.com and Nicole A. Cardoza on Instagram. And so more than happy to point you in the right direction or answer questions that you might have from this conversation. Awesome. Amazing. All right, uh, Nicole, our very last question. What does it mean to you to be a good ancestor? I think walking through this world in this this physical plane that we're on right now with uh, my past and future generations by my side. So being accountable for that work and also imagining uh, what a better future could look like for those coming after me. I'm so excited to watch you doing exactly that. Thank you so much, Nicole. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. This is Leila Saad. And you've been listening to Good Ancestor Podcast. I hope this episode has helped you find deeper answers on what being a good ancestor means to you. We'd love to have you join the Good Ancestor Podcast family over on Patreon, where subscribers get early access to new episodes, patron-only content and discussions, and special bonuses. Join us now at patreon.com forward slash good ancestor podcast. Thank you for listening. And thank you for being a good ancestor.